the book of James. And uh, we're going to finish off chapter 2 this morning. And uh, we're going to look at a prostitute story. That's the title of my message, A Prostitute Story. And this is a fantastic illustration that James concludes this section with, where he's talking about faith and works. He's talking about how we justify it freely by grace. And he's talking about how we live that out and our faith is not inactive, it's active, it's put into practice. And he uses this amazing illustration to finish off chapter 2, and he talks about a prostitute. And her name's Rahab. And we're going to look at verse 25. He says this, In the same way, in the same way as what? In the same way that Abraham was justified. So in the same way was not Rahab, the prostitute, justified, that's made right by God, by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as a body apart from its spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. Faith apart from works is dead. And this concludes James' theme. I've preached four or five messages now on the same theme because the whole of the second chapter is about faith and works and how those things go together. And so this is his conclusion. And then next week, or when the next time I'm in the pulpit, we're going to start looking at chapter 3. And chapter 3 starts with a big warning for people like me. <laughs> it says, not many of you should presume to want to be a teacher. And he lays into people who preach. So I'm going to get it next week, all right? So James, he doesn't respect people or persons or, 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 or positions in church. He's not interested in that. He wants to preach the gospel. And the gospel affects every single one of us. Those that stand here, those that sit there. No one is exempt from God's word, all right? And that's an encouragement. Should be an encouragement to all of us. So just to summarize for the sake of those that are visiting this morning, up to now, in the second chapter of James, he's shown us that there's a righteousness that is a free gift. Uh, gifts are free, so I shouldn't say a free gift. There's a righteousness that's free. There's a righteousness that's a gift. It's imputed to us. In other words, it's given freely to us. And it comes simply as we believe on the cross. We believe on Jesus. His righteousness, every good thing that he has, is imputed to us. We get it on credit. We get it for free. We do nothing to deserve it or contribute towards it at all. This is called the gospel. This is called the good news of Jesus. We receive freely his righteousness. Okay? And we are saved. And uh, Abraham was saved in Genesis 15, verse 6, where, G where God says, Look up and see all of the heavens. So numerous as the stars are in the sky, so will your descendants be. And the word says that he believed in his heart, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Instantly, he was saved. And so Abraham is the greatest figure of the grace of God outside of Christ in the Bible. He is called the father of our faith. He is called our friend, uh, the friend of God. All right? But then James is trying to encourage us, the people that he's writing to, these Jewish believers, had forgotten that it's not the only th The most important thing is that you are saved. But it's not the only thing. <laughs> and James is trying to encourage them. He says, don't forget that if you're saved, your faith must be in action. There's some good works that need to flow out of your life. There's some good things that must be motivated by the fact that you are saved. And so he uses those three very powerful illustrations. He says, don't be a lazy believer. Don't just rest in the fact that you are saved and not give yourself to do anything. 
He says it's like a dead body. If you live like that, it's like a dead body. A dead body is lifeless and cold. It's useless to itself. It's useless to other people. He says, don't have a faith like that. You might be saved, but you're useless if you are inactive in your faith. And then he says, he concludes, and he says, it's like a demon. It's believing like a demon. These are very, very (laughs) strong words. And then he used that illustration of Abraham. He says, consider Abraham the greatest example of the grace of God. You know, it was also true of Paul that just like Abraham, the grace of God so impacted Paul that the way he started was not the way that he finished. I want to encourage you. We are all, all, when, when God touched us and reached into our lives, the Bible says we were all dead in sin. All of us were dead. Every single one. And yet we don't end there. There's this amazing journey that we have with God. And so just like Abraham was commended 30 years later, and God said to him, you are now my friend, because you've lived a life of obedience. It was the same with Paul. Remember, when we are introduced to Paul in the New Testament, in the early book, in the early chapters of Acts, it says he's, he's rushing around, persecuting the church, breathing murderous threats over the church. He's doing all he can to persecute and kill Christians. That's how we are introduced to Paul. And yet when you read the book of Thessalonians, for example, in uh, chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says this. Now this is years later in his life. He says this, My gospel, my good news of Jesus came to you, not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. And you know what kind of men we prove to be amongst you. He's saying there's a testimony. There's a living testimony in my life. You can see what God has done in my life. I persecuted the church, and now I'm completely different. And in verse 10, he concludes, he says, You are witnesses, all of you, the Thessalonian church, and also God, how holy, how righteous, how blameless was my conduct while I was amongst you. Man, that is powerful. That is living righteousness. That's not just imputed righteousness. That's a free gift. We do nothing to deserve that, but it's living, active righteousness in our lives that everyone can see. That's a different thing. So James is trying to encourage these people saying, don't forget, of course you're saved. And I've tried to say this in so many different ways. Galatians says it's a free gift of grace to us. James calls it the law of liberty, the law of freedom. Romans talks to Paul's languages. He calls it the righteousness that comes from God. It's all the same thing, just expressed in different ways. And so... He's uh, writing to these guys to just encourage them that we need to be doers of the word as well as hearers of the word. It's not the, the fact that we are saved is fantastic, important, the most important. It's not the only thing that counts. Also, what counts is being a doer of the word, not just a hearer of the word. Someone said to me the other day, it doesn't really matter. I want to say it absolutely matters. It's the most important thing for you to realize that. Because if you don't know that you're saved, if you're not assured of your salvation, if you're not resting in the fact that you're a son or daughter of God, all the service that you have in your life is motivated by an anxiety. It's motivated by, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm good enough. And so there's a compulsion and an anxiety that can come into your life if you're not resting in the fact that Jesus loves me just as I am and I want to give my life to him and everything that I do is out of love for him. It's a completely, completely, it's as different as light is from dark. 
And I want to try to do all that I can wherever I preach to make sure that people are assured that they are saved. And from that point, they can live their lives joyfully, happily, obediently, without compulsion, without beating themselves up all the time, because it's a life, it's a walk by the Spirit, the walk of grace. Might be like Abraham all over the place to begin with, but as we live our lives, God brings us to a point where He wants to speak that same affirmation over us. You are my friend. Look how you love me. All right, so why then does James go from this big example of Abraham to the story of a prostitute? Well, I want to ask you to go to Joshua chapter 2, and I'm going to read a big chunk of that verse just to kick off. And there's a very good reason why James chooses the story of a prostitute to, to illustrate further what it means to be saved by grace. And what it means to live a life walking by the Spirit. And what it means for your faith to have action and to work together with the grace of God in your life. So, I'm going to read from the English Standard Version, Joshua chapter 2. Joshua, the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I don't know where the men went, but you pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the the forts, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land. I know that the Lord has given you the land. Very important. I know that the Lord's given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that we have all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard the Lord has dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the the Jordan, to Shion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as the Lord, we heard it, our, our hearts melted away, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heavens above and on the earth below. This is her declaration. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord as I have dealt kindly with you, that you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father, my mother, my brother, my sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the man said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then the Lord, when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window for a house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there for three days until they have returned, and then afterwards you may go on your way. And the men said, We will be gent- guiltless with respect 
to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. And behold, when we come into the land, you will tie a scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father, your mother, your brother, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood will be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our heads." But if you tell this business of ours, we will be guiltless and with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. And she let them down away and they departed and she tied a scarlet cord in the window. Ciao, it's an amazing story, eh? I love the Bible. It's so honest. It's so frank. It doesn't try and hide anything, the Bible. The Bible makes everything plain. It brings everything into the light. And if we will just look, we'll find everything that God has for us. It's a remarkable story, which James compares to the story of Abraham. Abraham saved by faith. In the same way, Rahab is saved by faith. She's saved by faith. Why do I say that? Well, it's important that we understand that she was saved by faith, because was she saved by faith when she hung the scarlet cord out of the window? Was she saved by faith when she let the spies out and guided them, helped them to get them out of the town? No, she wasn't. She was saved before that. She was saved in verse 9, where she makes this declaration. She says, I know that God has given you this land. I know. And then she carries on. She says, your God reigns in heaven and on earth. She is saved then. She has revelation of God. She doesn't want to suffer under the wrath of God as it comes to destroying the city. God's anger is against the Canaanites. She is saved then. By faith, she believes. Everything starts by faith. Abraham was saved by faith. Rahab was saved by faith. And there's this amazing prophetic picture. I read a book called The Scarlet Thread, which is an amazing book which talks about how the, the, the blood of, 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 of the Lamb is prophesied so much in the Old Testament. And what does she do? She lets down a scarlet thread, a cord, blood red, which prophesies that there's a perfect Lamb to come who will take away the sins of the world. And all who believe on Him will be saved. Ah, oh. The Bible is amazing. It begins with faith, and all her actions, everything that she does, comes because she first believed. So she's a pagan. She's a prostitute. She's instantly saved, given an imputed righteousness, a gift from heaven, and all because she believed by faith. And then she does extraordinary things just like Abraham did. I want to say to you this morning, it doesn't matter what your past has been. I don't care where you've come from. I don't care if you lived an immoral life. I don't care what your past, you might have had the most devastating childhood. I I grieve with you if that's the case. But I want to say to you that there is a Savior. His name is Jesus. He doesn't care where you came from. He's more interested in who you are and where you're going. This is the gospel. This is good news to everyone who believes. And so you, just like Rahab, can live an extraordinary life, doing extraordinary things for God just because you are saved by the gospel. You are saved by the good news of Jesus. So I want to just, uh, again, I've got five little things that I want to speak to you about Rahab's story. But as an introduction, I just want to 
give a couple of things that are similar to Abraham's story and a couple of things that are different to Abraham's story. First of all, some things that were similar. Both Rahab and, 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 and Abraham, what they did was unprecedented. No one had done it before, and to my knowledge, no one's done it since. So in that case, their story is similar. Secondly, like Abraham, she did what she did without anyone's support, without anyone's encouragement, without taking advice from anyone. She walked by the Spirit. She heard what the Spirit was saying to her, and she responded immediately, and she did what the Spirit said. Third, both Abraham and Rahab had to detach themselves from what was a nat- on the natural level. Abraham had to take all that was dear to him, his son that he trusted for for 100 years, and he had to say, God, I will give that back to you. It was against all of his natural inclination. Similarly, Rahab stands against her hometown. She stands against her culture. She stands against the king, and she takes these people in that are enemies of her country because God has spoken to her, and he says, she says, I choose to believe what you've spoken, God. I want to be saved. And so she goes against king and country because she believes God. I'm telling you, the time is coming that you and I are going to have to stand against king and country for what is true. It's coming. That little petition at the back there is a little sign of what is still to come. We're going to have to stand for what we believe, whether government approves or government doesn't approve. (laughs) It's true. Three differences in their story. Abraham offered up his son 30 years after he was saved. Rahab responds, Instantly. Doesn't wait. She did, she did an extraordinary thing the day she was saved. Abraham was told to do what he needed to by God. Rahab, by the Spirit, spontaneously. Abraham received God's affirmation at the end. God says over him, you are my friend. Rahab's affirmation comes from the spies. It comes from people. It comes from ultimately from Joshua. There's a couple of differences in the story as well. But the main thing I want to say now this morning is why does James choose this illustration? Point one. Because the people that James is writing to, these early Jewish Christians that he's trying to encourage, he's trying to write to, he he uses the example of a prostitute so that they wouldn't be discouraged by the amazing example of Abraham. Why? Because Abraham was the man. He was a wealthy patriarch. He was an exemplary Jew. James is trying to say to these people, God cares for every single one of you. It doesn't matter if you have stature in society or if you are the lowest of the low. God is interested in your story. He's interested in saving you. He's interested in reaching out to you. Abraham, the moral Jew. The model Jew. Rahab, a pagan Gentile. Abraham, a rich man. Rahab, a destitute, poor woman. Abraham, rich and powerful. Rahab, powerless, immoral in some ways. She's a, she's a prostitute. She's a, some, some say she's an innkeeper, but most would say she's a prostitute. We have the highest, we have the lowest. Abraham plays a major, major role in all of redemption story and, and all, of, all of salvation story. Uh, Rahab's story is a little part of that. Abraham takes 30 years to come to the pinnacle of his life. 
Rahab almost instantly, on the same day, responds and does what God calls her to do. What is my point? My point is this, that is God is interested in every single one of us. Every single one of us. God, there's a great variety in the kingdom of God. What is most important to God, however big you feel your role is in the kingdom, however small you might feel your role is in the kingdom, God's story of redemption is unfolding continually all the time. You and I are part of that redemption story. What He wants, whether we feel big or whether we feel small, He wants bold faith from us and He wants bold action from us at the same time. Am I too loud? Okay. All right. That's why he chooses it. Second reason why he chooses it is to show us that growth and obedience don't need to take a long time. (laughs) Growth and obedience don't need to take a long time. You can grow very quickly in the kingdom by obeying, or you can take a long time to grow in the kingdom by being disobedient. You don't have to wait until you grow up to obey. Can I say this nicely? To grow up is to obey. (laughs) To grow up is to obey. There's too many babies in diapers, in men's bodies, too many in the kingdom. Too many who refuse simply to grow up by being obedient. And so we we have the situation in the church where that unfortunately can be the case. I want to encourage you to, Paul says, I want you all to grow up in Christ. I want you to become spiritually mature. I don't want you to be a baby anymore in diapers. (laughs) How do we grow up from being babies in diapers? We start to obey what the Word says. We, We simply obey what the Word says. I respect that all of us are equal before the cross. I absolutely respect that. I respect that all of us are individuals, that we all have different gifts. I respect that completely. But I do not respect that we, are, we grow up in a community that says, you live for yourself. I do not respect that. The Bible, whenever it speaks, this is the problem. There's only one word for you in the English language. And when you say you, it normally means singular. The problem is when you read the New Testament, when God talks, uses the word you in Greek, there are multiple, multiple translations of that. And most of the time when the word is you is used in the Bible, it's about community. It's about more than one. God is seeking a people, a community. That community is made up of individuals. He's not seeking people that go off and do their own thing and say, I don't need you, I just need the Holy Spirit. I do not respect that. That is against everything that the Scripture stands for. God is seeking a people. He is seeking a church. He is seeking a loving community that people can be saved into. Do, do, do I respect that you have an individual walk with God? Of course I do. Of course I do. But I'm saying God is calling us into community with each other. It's not just about living for myself. It's about living for others. It's about giving myself away to see freedom come for other people. Not just me. Okay. Third. James chooses the story to show that works do something for the kingdom... Works do something for the kingdom that faith alone cannot do. I want to explain that. In a way, 
Rahab's story demonstrates better what James has been trying to say, demonstrates it better than Abraham's story. Why? Because James is most concerned, remember one of the themes of chapter 2, he's most concerned about the influence that these, these believers' lives is having on others. Remember? Yeah, that's why he says, well, if there's no um, uh, faith is not in action, what good does it do the poor man? It doesn't do him any good if you're just kind of saved and you're not doing anything for the poor man. And it's a similar theme. He's saying here, he's concerned by the effective witness. He's trying to say, I'm concerned about the impact that you're having on other people. And so Rahab's story showing that faith alone, there's something more powerful that can happen when there's faith in action. That's what he's saying. Her faith was real. She was saved. She believed in God alone. But that was not going to save the spies, the fact that she was saved, the fact that she had have revelation of God. It might have impressed them that she, they, they knew, she knew why they were there and what they'd come to do. That might have been impressive. But what they needed, they needed her good work. They needed the scarlet cord. They needed her to hide them. That's what they needed. That saved them. That did something for them. So, it's James's point being just said in another way. God wants doers as well as hearers. Not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word author. Also, And fourth, I want to say that James uses this illustration because it shows what good works do for us. Do you know that good works do something for you as well? And that's what James is trying to say. Well, those works that Rahab did, they were testimony for others, but also it did something for her. What did the good work that Rahab did, what did it do for her? It saved her. I mean, that's a big deal. She wasn't destroyed along with all the other people in the city. Why? Because the scarlet, that whole thing with the scarlet thread and the household, she was saved. She was saved. She risked all of her life and all that she had, but she got it back from God. Remember I told you, the thing that God is asking you to give, He doesn't want to, He gives it back. He might give it back in a different way, but He gives it back. What did Jesus say? Matthew 16, 25. Whoever would save his life, whoever wants to save his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's Jesus' promise to you. It's Jesus' promise to me. If you go after the kingdom, you're not going to lose anything. You're going to get it back. I promise you, you will. Why? Because Jesus said, not because I said. Rahab found her life. She lost her life in a sense, and she found it back. And what uh, even Rahab the prostitute understands, she doesn't just pray for herself, save me, save me, save me, Lord. No. She says, please remember my family. Please remember my household. Remember my loved ones. Remember more than just me. Please don't just save me. Save all those that I love. And what happens? The whole household is saved. The whole household, all the relatives, everyone who crammed into the house, everyone who believed on the scarlet thread was saved. And that's what Jesus says, Matthew 19, 29. Anyone, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake, for my sake, not for their sake, not for getting riches' sake, for my sake. Anyone who leaves all those things for my sake will receive, he has the promise, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Jesus said it. 
You're going to lose nothing by living for others. You're going to get it all back. I promise you. Now, don't say that selfishly. You might get it back in a different way, and it's not necessarily going to be material, but the blessing of God will be on your life as you live for others and give yourself away for other people. And this is what Peter says. Well, the writer in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6, the Hebrew writer, he says this. James is making the point in this chapter that God will bless you by what you do, by your obedience. And so, chapter 6, verse 10 of the Hebrew says, For God is not unjust as to overlook your work. You know, sometimes your boss can overlook your hard work and you don't get rewarded. The Hebrew writer is saying, no, no, God is not like that. God is not like an unjust boss. He sees every good thing that you do. He sees your good work. Don't get weary in doing good work because he says, God sees and doesn't overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name. How do we show love for his name? Well, the Hebrew writer makes it quite clear. It says, in serving the saints as you do. In serving other people, in loving other people, in giving yourself away for others, you honor his name. You honor him. You make his name great. You make his name glorious. And then Peter, he focuses it even further and he says, this is how these good works affect you. They do have a good effect on you as you do them. Peter says this, 2 Peter 1 verse 8. If these qualities, these good things, these good works, what are they? He defines them. If these things are increasing in your life, love, knowledge, patience, gentleness, Godliness, all those good things. These are good works that we give ourselves to as well as practical things. If those things are increasing in your life, they keep you from being unfruitful and ineffective. That's what Peter says in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you want to be fruitful in your life? Do you want to grow? Do you want to be effective in everything that you do? What is the encouragement of God's word to you? Once you're saved, don't live for yourself. Don't live for yourself. Don't just live for your little family. Live for other people. Live for the lost. Live for the broken. Give yourself away and you will get it back a hundredfold. Might be a different way, but you'll get it back. And God will bless you. Last reason why James chooses the story of Rahab. I mentioned it last week. I want to mention it again. He shows the story, he chooses the story of Rahab the prostitute to show us that God is, does not presume perfection for you and I. Doesn't presume perfection. God is perfect. What did I say last week? He's not a perfectionist. God is perfect. He's not a perfectionist. Both Abraham and Rahab did extraordinary things, but both of them were far from perfect. And I tried last week to show you Abraham had an imperfect walk of faith and obedience, but God still was pleased with him. He has Rahab, a prostitute. She doesn't have time to become perfect. She doesn't have time to kind of put her life right. She's saved, and then she does. And she would have had to change her lifestyle, but God doesn't look upon that in the fact that she, she, in that moment, she still does something that pleases God and is good for the kingdom, even though she's, she's a prostitute dead in her sin. Do you get what I'm trying to say? You don't have to wait to obey God. 
can still be useful and productive whatever your background and circumstance. When the grace of God touches you. And so we've all got weaknesses, don't we? We've all got things that make us stumble and we pick ourselves up often off the ground by the bootstraps. God doesn't require absolute perfection from us. We are absolutely perfect because of the imputed righteousness that Christ gives us. When he looks at you and me, he sees perfection. He doesn't see my sin. Doesn't mean that I'm sinless. Means my behavior still has to change as the Holy Spirit shows me and transforms me from the inside out. Having said that, I do want to say this. Both what Abraham did and Rahab did required amazing courage. It required self-denial. It required separating, distracting, detaching themselves from all that was naturally seemed good and pleasing. It required diligence. It required perseverance to see it through. And my friends, if you and I are going to count for the kingdom, we too are going to have to resist the world, resist the flesh, resist the devil, trust God, persevere, stand. Sanctification does not presume perfection. It doesn't mean we must be perfect. In our imperfection, we can serve God joyfully, happily. The main thing I want to say, thank you for the couple of amens that encourages me. It's a good thing. What we learn from the stories of both Abraham and Rahab is that what we do does matter to God. It's a testimony of the whole of Scripture. It doesn't save us, but it does matter to God. Rahab wasn't told what to do. She was spontaneously walking by the Spirit. We all have freedom as Christians, but what we do need to see We need to see what needs to be done, and we need to do it. Okay? You don't have to wait for God to give you some divine revelation. If you see something that needs to be done, get on and do it. Just as Hebrews chapter 11, I looked at it last week, all those great saints, all those great people, those men and women of faith, they were commended because they heard God say something to them, and they responded, and they did it. And this is the key that I want to say to you this morning. I trust you get it. I'm not talking about selfishness. I'm not talking about me doing my own thing, separate from God's people. Oh, I'm walking by the Spirit. So I'll just go off, I'll ignore God's people, I'll find my destiny outside of the church, I'll just do this thing, and aren't I a spiritual person? No, you are not. You are a desperately immature person. Desperately immature. Spectacularly immature. Living for yourself. No. I'm saying it loudly. (laughs) We live for Him. We live for each other. And my desire is to see many prodigals come back into the church, but not tolerating bad behavior. I read this this week. Robert Rowan said, you see, I'm saying this. I believe in the sanctity of individuals, that we are individuals before the cross. I do not believe in individualism. Individualism says I will live for myself. It's the spirit of this age. You don't even have to go to the movies anymore. You can now have, if you've got an iPhone, you can sit on home in your bed and watch your movies, separate from anybody else. It's desperate. Our community is being broken down stage by stage by stage by stage. We've got to wake up. It's about community. It's about God's people, not just me. This guy, I read this week, he says, individualism makes church almost impossible. 
It makes community almost impossible. It makes compassion almost impossible. He's absolutely right. It makes it incredibly, incredibly, incredibly hard when people cannot submit themselves to the will of God and the Word of God and actually be humble enough to say, I need you. My friend, I need you. You, you, I need all of you. I need you. I can't see God completely without you, and you can't see God completely without me. Together, we find the mind of Christ. I'm sorry, I don't apologize for that. I am completely passionate about that. Churches are being destroyed because of individualism. It's possible, lastly, it's possible to have faith without works. And that, I believe, is why James is saying this. He concludes a third time, and he says, faith apart from works is dead. Why does he say it again? Well, I think he's stressing it again. He said it three times now. He's stressing it again. I haven't been going long, eh? Not half an hour yet. I'm doing well this morning. Okay. It doesn't mean I'm going to go any longer, right? Don't worry. He stresses it three times because he's trying to say, every time that he says it, he's hoping that we're going to get it a little bit more. He's hoping we're going to understand it a little bit more. So he says it again. He concludes the section by saying, again, last time, third time, faith, just as a spirit, uh, a body without a spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. My point is this, that faith demands from us, it, it, it never, it, uh, it's such a, a, a difficult thing to express because if James was not saying that faith apart from works was possible, he wouldn't be trying to encourage them like this to, to give themselves to doing good works. Do you understand what I'm saying? Uh, clearly, it is possible to have faith without works. That's what it means to be a backslidden Christian. To be someone who's just saved, but counting nothing for the kingdom. Clearly, it is possible. And I want to say to you and to myself, there have been times in my life where I have been apathetic, I have been resting on my laurels. I have been sitting on my butt, saved. And then someone, God has used someone, either through the preaching or either through His Holy Spirit, just directly speaking, where suddenly you wake up and say, no, this is not it. God has more. I'm sorry, Lord. I don't want to sit in my butt all my life. I'm saved. I'm so thankful that I'm saved. But I want to give myself for something that counts. My life must count for your kingdom. And God uses people. And perhaps I've offended you many, many times in what I've said, but perhaps God is using me to get you off your butt. Get me off my butt. <laughs> is that rude to say that in English? No? Bottom. <laughs> to get us all of our bottoms. We're not, God never intended us forever to sit in our bottoms. True faith, you might say, well, surely true faith always means that there's work flowing out of your life. I just want to say, I'm not sure that that's what James is saying, because if, he was, if that was so, he wouldn't be trying to encourage us like this. And secondly, Paul says in Romans 6, verse 1, what should we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace might, might abound? Are we con just continue the way that we are so that grace might abound? And he carries on, Paul says, surely not, no. So both Paul and James encourage us that faith demands action. We, can't, we all need to be encouraged. I'm trying to encourage you. It's not enough to say that we are 
we shouldn't sin and that we ought to love God and if we're really Christians, it's all going to work out in the end. It's not, it's got not good enough because there's a clear encouragement here from James that it is possible to have faith without works. And what James is trying to say, that kind of faith is destructive. It's worth nothing. It's half-hearted. It's apathetic. It doesn't change you. It doesn't change anyone else. Get off your bottom. Get off my bottom. Please. I'm not trying to accuse anyone, all right? <laughs> I'm not. I'm just saying this is the encouragement of God. And lastly, I'm not talking about a false profession of faith either. You know, the parable of the sower makes that quite clear. The parable of the sower says that there is a false profession of faith. It says that the seed is sowed, it takes root, and sometimes it seems to take root quickly, and there's even some fruit that grows up, but then after a while it's obvious the fruit dies and it's dead. So I'm not saying either that if there's a lot of good works that it means we are saved. I'm not saying that either. There are many charities in this, in this uh, wonderful nation that do much good work without any motivation of faith. Would you agree? Now, James is not saying that. You know, of course our good works are motivated by faith. James is trying to say in the same way that Jesus said. You see, Jesus said this in Matthew 5.13, You are the salt of the earth. If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. God is not talking about you losing your salvation. He's just saying if you are a Christian like that, instead of being salty, you've lost what you were designed to do, and it's like salt that should be flavoring food. If it loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing. You might as well throw it out. It's like a dead body. The same thing, just different words. It's only one thing to do with a dead body. Bury it. Say goodbye to it. It's only one thing. You know, when there's constant, constant, constant in the church, if there's constant disobedience and refusal to repent, you know what um, Paul says to the man in 1 Corinthians 5 who's continuing in sexual immorality and it's been pointed out to him and he refuses to repent, he's actually sleeping with his mother-in-law. That's the illustration in there. That's what the Bible says. He says there's only one thing to do with that man. Throw him out of the church. Throw him out. Have nothing to do with him. It says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his body so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. That might seem harsh. I believe God wants a holy church. I believe, secondly, that God wants a church that understands that works do count. If I'm not living what I profess, it is dead and useless. The good news is, in 2 Corinthians 5, when that same man repents, God, the people of God welcome him back into the congregation and he's restored to his brothers. That's the good news. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be like that forever. You see, if we're not living out, we are divided. We are useless to ourselves, useless to others. So, faith, I'm concluding now. Faith is, was designed for our salvation. It's by faith that we are saved. I want to say this to you. We are also called to live by faith. We are also called to walk by faith. We are also called to obedience by faith. All of this is by faith. All of it is by faith. Saved by faith, and you live, and you walk by faith. If there are any good works that flow from our lives, they are motivated by faith. And if there's no good works flowing from our lives, everybody suffers. But if faith is allowed to do what it's designed to do in our lives, godliness 
and obedience result. It leaves the world without excuse. They can't say to the, the, the Christians, you such hypocrites, and they're left without excuse. And Peter says that it has this effect on us. 1 Peter 1 verse 8, it says, there's a, a joy unspeakable full of glory. How many of you want your life to be filled with a joy unspeakable full of glory? I do. That's a promise to us. Paul says the same thing. I love the language of the New Testament. It's always saying the same thing, just in a different way. Paul says in Romans 14, 17, he says the same thing. He says, the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. And I love good food. I love that. I love hanging out with people and eating food. It's beautiful. It's a wonderful thing. But he says, it's not about just eating and drinking. He says, it's about righteousness, peace, and joy. It's about an inexpressible joy in your life that comes as you obey God. That's what he's saying. Same thing. So, to try and conclude this and to encourage you, I would encourage you, when you read the Bible, when you see words like justification, when you see words like righteousness, I'm asking you to start thinking of two things in your mind, not just one. Certainly, Righteousness, justification means imputed righteousness. It means a gift from God. It means grace. It means the gospel. We don't earn it. It means that. But what James is trying to say to us, and he calls it the perfect law of liberty, he calls it, Galatians calls it the perfect law of the spirit, the perfect law of freedom. But what James is saying to us in chapter 2 is that there's a living righteousness in our lives, a living justification that comes when faith and work come together, hand in hand, and they produce an amazing thing in our lives. That's what he's saying. Uh, there's a writer called Richard Seabees, and he said this, value sanctification by works as much as you do justification by faith alone. Value the two. Hold them in equally high regard. Certainly I'm saved. I'm not going to lose that but I want to live my life in a way that pleases Him. And that's equally important. It's not just one or the other, it's both and. If we do that, the story of Abraham and the story of Rahab will have served its purpose in our lives and we will have understood what God has for us. Yes, inexpressible joy, righteousness, peace, and joy. Flown down, flowing out, pressed down, shaken together, all that stuff. Multiple, multiple, multiples of those things in our life. Amen.